Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of September 30th. Range bound no more. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss how credit spreads and swap spreads have both broken out of multi-month trading ranges in the past week, and the direction both are likely ahead in the near term. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, it seems like the theme of our last few podcasts has been just talking about this range that spreads have been in for a while now. And for the first time in a long time, that is no longer the case. Yeah. So credit spreads were pretty range bound for about two months, swap spreads for the better part of three months. Last week, we finally broke out of that range. So in credit spreads, we had seen IG corporates trade around 124 to 131 basis points wide of treasuries since the beginning of August. We broke out to the upside of that range last Wednesday. Spreads actually finished last week at 140 basis points, so nine basis points wider than the top of that range. They've come back a few basis points over the last couple of days. Underperformance in credit spreads has broadly been a result of the factors we'd been discussing here at length. That's the weaker economy, worsening virus transmission rates, a lack of fiscal stimulus, and then technicals which had weighed on spreads for a few months too. Now, with respect to swap spreads, two-year spreads broke out of their range, which was around six to nine basis points. Five-year spreads were trading around four to seven basis points since the end of July. And those broke out of their range also to the upside, but that's been more about the pricing in of the potential for these ISDA fallbacks to take place in the next year or so, and that's going to imply a higher LIBOR rate after cessation. Okay, so to start our discussion, I think we should start by focusing on credit spreads. We've been recommending a credit spread underweight. That underweight has been factored by three main factors. I think you touched on some of them. The first one being the path of virus slash stimulus in the next couple months. We are seeing virus transmission rates increasing in Europe and in plenty of states in the United States as well. We're obviously not to the point yet in the U.S. where we're talking about renewed lockdowns, but the U.K. is obviously there already, and that's a possibility in the months ahead. So that's the first one. The second one is the presidential election, which we'll talk about. And the third, you touched on briefly, was our expectation for technical headwinds. That has been the case in recent weeks, but maybe that's about to change. We'll also talk about that. So now the question that really comes to my mind is, is this the backup and spreads that we're going to get? And is this the buying opportunity we've been waiting for? Or are we going to see more spread widening in the weeks ahead that investors would be well served to wait for? I think we should take it factor by factor and start with the path of the virus and stimulus. So obviously, we talked about increasing virus statistics recently. That will likely continue to worsen as the temperatures continue to drop in the Northern Hemisphere, but that is potentially offset by the potential for vaccine headlines. And I think the big one and what's causing a big risk on financial markets here today is the possibility for more fiscal stimulus. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said on TV today that he expects to be able to reach a compromise with Nancy Pelosi and Congress Democrats and ultimately deliver another package. The number seems to be hovering around $1.5 trillion at this point. That it's really hard to handicap the potential for success there because it, it's not clear to me that 
either or both of the parties is willing to get to that number. Republicans have obviously wanted a more skinny package, quote unquote, as they've been calling it up until this point. Democrats calling for more stimulus. And it doesn't seem like either one has moved too much, but maybe that's what makes a compromise. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really important factor to follow is the size of any stimulus bill that we get and also the composition of it, the extent to which it's going to allow the economy to weather a potential reinstitution of lockdowns. Yeah, I think it might be just too early to call this one. I think to your point, whether or not this stimulus package is sufficient to bridge the economy to the point where a vaccine is widely available and the economy can begin to return to some semblance of normal. That remains to be seen. It just depends on what the composition of the stimulus is going to be if we do get one. Fortunately, I don't think we're going to have to wait very long. It does seem like if there is going to be a package agreed to, it seems like that will become clear by the end of the week, even if it's not necessarily signed, sealed, and delivered by the end of the week. It does seem like conversation between Mnuchin and Pelosi this afternoon and a potential vote tomorrow in the House paving the way to stimulus package next week if we're going to get one. So for the first factor, I think we just kind of have to grade that as incomplete right now. We have to see what the stimulus package is going to look like already. Obviously, a significant portion of that stimulus package is pricing into markets today. We've missed that. So now whether the next leg is going to be further optimism if the package is robust or some disappointment if there is no package or it's a disappointing package remains to be seen alongside the evolution of the virus here in the next two weeks. So I think we'll go incomplete there. Uh, We'll move on to the second factor, which is the presidential election. Dan, we talked about that in significant detail in last week's podcast. Last night, we had the first of the presidential debates. And I don't think we need to get in too much of a commentary surrounding the characterization of those debates. That's well-traveled ground at this point. I just think it's fair to say that it's difficult to declare either candidate a winner after last night's fiasco. So I don't think the election odds or the probability that either one of them will win has changed significantly. But we did see a risk-off reaction immediately following the debate that has since retraced. But I think that that immediate risk-off is telling. Yeah, I think to your point, I don't think either candidate dominated the debate last night. I do think at this point in the race, a tie probably in some sense goes to Vice President Biden. This is borne out in prediction markets, which showed him getting a modest boost of a couple percentage points following last night's debate. And then we did see some risk off, and that coincided with the unsurprising declaration by President Trump that he won't necessarily respect the results of the election. I think that just goes to show that we are viewing the possibility of an uncertain election outcome or contested or disputed election result immediately following the election as a very real possibility. I think that's going to weigh on spreads in the near term, at least. I agree, Dan. And anyone who listened to our podcast last week will recall that we highlighted uncertainty as the primary risk to credit spreads from the election. And we used the comparison to the 2020 uncertainty in the Bush-Gore election as our guidepost there. But I think there is a significant difference between this election and the 2000 experience, and that's that the uncertainty is sort of foreseeable here. I think that that's actually now a base case and consensus from the market is that people are expecting a certain degree of, of uncertainty of a contested election, whatever you want to call it. And so, whereas in 2020, where we saw a knee-jerk spread widening as that uncertainty priced into the market after the election, I think we'll see that price in this time before the election. And so following the debate last night, which has further confirmed the idea that President Trump is not going to be leaving the Oval Office very willingly, solidifying that that uncertainty is going to happen. And so you could ultimately end up with a sell the rumor, buy the fact sort of thing here with uncertainty pricing in ahead of the election. And then what ultimately happens, you know, in the weeks following the election will depend on 
how uncertain things turn out to be. At this point, there is some risk that the uncertainty might get overpriced and ultimately make the election a buying opportunity. So I think with the second factor, I think the near-term impact on spread is that it will continue to provide widening influence in the weeks ahead, but ultimately the election potentially representing a by-the-fact type of event where we could see spreads move narrower outside of an extremely uncertain outcome featuring unrest and things of that nature. So I think when we're looking at the second factor, the presidential election, it would argue to remain underweight credit in the near term, but keep an eye on late October as a potential time to start building longs ahead of what we're on record as being a very low spread environment next year. And that segues now to our third factor that's been underpinning our credit underweight, and that is technical headwinds. And we've certainly got that through September. In the IG market, we had another record month this month, the heaviest September in history in the SSA agency market, another very heavy month, gross issuance above $30 billion. That's the third largest in terms of net supply in SSAs in the past three years. So issuance very heavy through September, although this week it seems like we might be taking a step back. This week through the first two days, just $15 billion in investment-grade corporate issuance, which leaves us about $10 billion shy of expectations. Today, Wednesday, we've only had two issuers in the market. So it's likely that issuance comes in below expectations for this week. And now, while this doesn't make a trend, I think there's some reason to believe that the extensive heavy supply that we've seen since March could be moderating a little bit into October. We looked back at recent October issuance around presidential election years and found modest evidence of issuance being higher than normal in September and then lower than normal in October in election years, which we view as lending some credence to the notion that issuers like to pre-fund ahead of elections. So that could be somewhat responsible for the particularly heavy issuance we saw in September. And if this trend continues, we would see somewhat of a reprieve in issuance in October. Now, we don't think that issuance is going to be particularly light next month, but it should come in more in line with historical averages. Historically, in recent October's issuance hovers around 95 billion or so, and we're forecasting about 85 to 90 billion investment-grade corporates in October. I think that logic makes a lot of sense, especially you know looking at this week. There really has been much of a reason for issuance to remain light. I mean, we've had a little bit of a risk off a couple of days. I wouldn't say anything that should likely scare issuers away. So it does seem like issuance might be starting to slow down. And then looking ahead to just the next two weeks, there is some holidays that the market will be contending with. There's significant Asian holidays next week. And then obviously Monday the 12th is a holiday in the United States. So we know that some issuers steer clear of holiday weeks, particularly in the SSA market. So in addition to your estimate for IG supply, we're looking at a relatively regular October in terms of the SSA market as well. Issuance in the $20 billion neighborhood, which is a one-third decline from September and in line with previous Octobers as well, with SSA borrowers pretty well funded for this point in the year. And also cross-currency arbitrages making foreign currencies looking a little more attractive compared to the dollar than from the majority of 2020. So I think in the week's head, I think issuance slowing down is a very real possibility. And we could start to see that technical head would start to slow. That's it. If we do get a couple weeks of pretty light issuance and we're expecting October to remain in the context of historical norms, that would imply to me that the second half of October then would be maybe a little heavier and we could see a little bit of technical pressure then. And you know, to bring it all together into a high level here, I think if we look at the presidential election, we're expecting a little bit more weakness in spreads as that price is in over the next few weeks with technicals. I think Despite a near-term improvement, we could see another leg lower in late October. That would potentially point to late October being a good buying opportunity. And 
Then the first factor, the virus and stimulus, that's the least clear. Obviously, if we get stimulus here in the near term and it's significant, that probably changes the outlook and we have to have a broader discussion about it. But while we await details on stimulus as well as the path of the virus in North America and Europe, I would give that factor a sort of neutral outlook right now. And bringing it all together, I think that our credit spread underweight in the near term will hold. But again, stressing the importance of initiating those longs by the end of October, we could have a little bit more spread widening before then, but definitely heading into the end of the year with credit spreads overweighted ahead of a low spread 2021. That's at least a view from where I'm sitting. Dan, what are your thoughts? Dan, I agree. The case for this underweight position we've held in credit over the past couple of months has largely resulted in the spread widening for the reasons we've largely expected. And as we just discussed, the case for continuing to hold this underweight position is growing somewhat weaker. And so I think over the next couple of weeks, there will be growing impetus to build longs even before late October. And I think definitely given any improving headlines around this fiscal stimulus package, I think investors would be wise to build some longs over the next few weeks. Okay. And now turning the conversation to swap spreads, we're breaking out of the channel is actually more unexpected. As Dan said, we've been holding this credit underweight, waiting for a move wider. It came, maybe not as large or as quickly as we'd hoped, but it did come. But with swap spreads, we kind of thought the range would stay in place for the foreseeable future, just given extraordinary Fed accommodation. In fact, the only way we thought that spreads would move out of the range would be if we had a significant deterioration in the macro environment and we saw LIBOR start to move higher, which would be a widener. So we've maintained our view that we'd rather be long than short swap spreads. And so that view has paid off as swap spreads have moved wider. But I wouldn't say that's because of pressure coming from LIBOR. What has been the driver? So it's been more about the ISDA fallbacks coming further into focus. So remember the FCA made an announcement a few weeks ago that a pre-cessation announcement could come as early as this year, which would lock the credit spread adjustment. Now, the fallback rates would not be applied until LIBOR went away, likely the end of 2021, but we would then know the fallback spread. And that fallback spread would be roughly 26 basis points for three-month LIBOR. So what that means is that if the FCA made the announcement at the end of this year that by the end of 2021, LIBOR would no longer be representative, then the credit spread adjustment would freeze at 26 basis points. And by the beginning of 2022, LIBOR contracts would fall back to SOFR plus 26 basis points. Now, current LIBOR bases are pricing lower than 26 basis points above SOFR. And so as this comes further and further into view and the possibility of this pre-cessation announcement becomes greater, we're going to continue to see LIBOR bases widen. Yeah. And I think the key point that you make there is that we've seen swap spreads start to widen alongside that announcement from ISDA that the protocols would be released. That was September 23rd. And it's been widening since then over the course of the past week plus. But that probably doesn't come as a huge surprise to a lot of people. After all, we were expecting this protocol in July. It's been pushed back to what October, I think, is what is implied. So why is this news causing spreads to move wider? And I think you hit on the key point. It's the fact that the FCA is potentially going to be making a pre-cessation trigger by the end of the year, but they can't do that until ISDA has the fallback in place. So ISDA's announcement that we're going to have the protocols by the end of October paves the way for a potential pre-cessation announcement from FCA by the end of the year, which as Dan said, locks on the spread and should imply some degree of increased pricing to those fallbacks. Now, one last thing I want to touch on regarding sulfur liable before we wrap up today's episode is 
the coming Big Bang. We're not going to have an episode next week because we're going to have a monthly cross-sector roundtable. So we won't have an episode next week, which means that this would be the last high-quality spreads podcast before the quote-unquote Big Bang coming October 16th. And I just want to highlight a couple of things there. The first one being that a couple of weeks ago, we got the first size indications of compensatory swap auctions at LCH. So this is just LCH, not CME. But this is the auction that the clearinghouse is holding to allow customers that do not want the compensatory swap to allow them to sell off that exposure to the market. And I think the takeaway we saw was that the size of those auctions was much smaller than the market anticipated, particularly out in the long end of the curve where the 30-year exposure was just $500 million. And so we saw the 30-year Fed fund SOFR basis snap in in response to the revelation of LCH auction sizes. But since then, it's worth noting that it's not only resumed widening, but has now touched all-time highs. And that seems a bit counterintuitive given the market's reaction to the LCH auction, but There's two possible explanations here. The first one is that the market is basically just throwing away the LCH auction sizes since the majority of customers that likely don't want to hold the compensatory swaps are real money accounts in the U.S. that primarily clear through CME. Maybe the market just ignoring the LCH auction sizes and speculators are setting up for much larger auction sizes at CME. The second explanation is that some of these real money accounts that don't want the compensatory swap are looking to restrike their exposures ahead of the October 2nd CME deadline for opting in or out of the compensatory swap arrangement. So it could be that we're seeing these real money accounts just recoupon outside of the clearinghouse protocol, and that's pressuring the basis wider now. And that would imply we'd ultimately see a narrowing in the long end so for Fed funds basis if we see CME auction sizes similarly small to LCH. Obviously, this is an unknowable question, but given the degree of widening we've seen in the basis in the past couple weeks, the second explanation seems a bit more likely to me. We don't have data to back that up or anything, but the fact that we've touched new highs, even despite the evidence from LCH, as well as just anecdotal evidence from conversations with clients, which admittedly hasn't touched all of those real money accounts for sure, but it just seems like as we head into the Big Bang and the Sulfur-Libor transition more broadly, client priority has been on reducing uncertainty more than anything else. And so if you have an investor that can't operationally handle the compensatory swap, it would seem to me that that investor would be motivated to recoupon the portfolio ahead of the Big Bang rather than go into an auction, which could fail. I mean, there is a process where the cost of the auction is too high, the auction fails, and that investor ends up with the swap he or she doesn't want anyways. That just strikes me as uncertain. So wouldn't the investor be better served just by recouponing the portfolio ahead of time? Our conversations with clients have gone more that way, though we'll admit we haven't gotten a lot of explicit plans of what people are going to do, but it just seems like reducing uncertainty is the name of the game here. And if that's the case, then maybe we're going to ultimately see smaller auction sizes at CME, similar to what LCH showed, in which case we could see that long-end SOFR Fed funds basis come back in. And then finally, it'd be worth noting that this Big Bang was supposed to suddenly generate a bunch more volume in SOFR futures and start getting them to levels where we could have a term SOFR. The actual follow-through in terms of increased volume may not be as significant as regulators were hoping for. We'll find out in the next few weeks, obviously, how big the quote-unquote Big Bang ends up being or if it becomes, as one client put it to me, the big whimper. Dan, anything else to add before we wrap up? No, I think that covers it. Thank you for listening to Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. 
please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.